From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. You're listening, you're listening. You're listening to Terra Informa. With all the buzz about artificial intelligence, also known as AI, ChatGPT, and machine learning, we wanted to think about how and if these technologies can be used to aid the environment and pressing environmental concerns like the climate crisis. So this week, we're going to be talking about how artificial intelligence, specifically machine learning, and environmentalism mesh. My name is Lizzie Barron. And my name is Lauren Spielman. We'll be your hosts for the next half hour of environmental news, stories, and ideas. Before we begin, we would like to acknowledge that this episode was written and co-produced in Treaty 13 territory, in Sitzkoronto, or as it is recently known, Toronto, the traditional territory of the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabek, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples. This episode was also co-hosted and co-produced in Treaty 6 territory, in Amiskwetski, Wiskaigen, Beaver Hills House or so-called Edmonton. We are broadcasting from unrecognized Papas Chase Cree territory. The Papas Chase Cree were displaced following consistent efforts from local officials like Frank Oliver to discredit the legitimacy of their treaty right to this territory and to reserve number 136, now South Edmonton. Not confined to history, this region is also the present homelands of many First Peoples who build their lives here, pursue livelihoods, and gather together, including Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, and Dene. Wherever you're listening from, we ask you to consider whose version of history informs your understanding of the land you are on. Throughout this episode, we discuss how machine learning can be utilized to work on pressing environmental concerns, specifically in Drayton Valley, which is in Treaty 6 territory. As all machine learning projects are built using data, we encourage you to consider how data for all research within computer science and beyond is collected and utilized, especially data from and about Indigenous peoples and communities. To this end, we encourage listeners to learn more about the data sovereignty framework developed by the First Nations Information Governance Center. This framework is called the First Nations Principles of OCAP, where OCAP stands for Ownership, Control, Access, and Possession. These principles ensure that First Nations communities have control over both the data that is collected from within their communities, as well as how this data is used and distributed. For further reading about the First Nations principles of OCAP, please check out the show notes. On today's episode, we're listening to an interview Lizzie conducted with Dr. Martha White, where they speak about her research into using machine learning to make water treatment in Drayton Valley more environmentally friendly and optimal. As well, the interview delves into machine learning's applications in solving environmental issues like wildfire prediction and climate modeling. Thank you so much, Lauren. So for some more context, I recently graduated with my computer science degree from the University of Alberta, and I have been grappling with how technology can best be developed, built, and used for good. So I was really heartened to speak with Martha one of my former professors actually, about the work she is doing, combining cutting edge machine learning techniques with ameliorating environmental concerns. My name is Martha White. I'm an associate professor at the University of Alberta in the Department of Computing Science. And what is your experience in the machine learning world? I've been in machine learning for a long time now. So I did my master's and PhD in machine learning. Actually, I started undergraduate research as well, doing machine learning research. 
I started a little bit more on the game theory side, you know, asking more about how do you design systems or you have agents interacting with each other. But pretty early on in my PhD, I also started looking a lot at the area that I focus on now, which is reinforcement learning. That segues really excellently into my next question, which is we're often hearing these terms used and sometimes interchangeably. Would you be able to provide definitions for some terms that were all on the same page? So you mentioned reinforcement learning and machine learning and also we also hear artificial intelligence. Sure. I mean, just like all terminology, there isn't actually crisp, well agreed upon definitions. But the way I like to think of it is this artificial intelligence is the larger area that is really more about automated decision making, automated prediction systems. Um, machine learning is more specifically where you start looking at statistical techniques. So you have data and you want to have your agents learn from that data or your, you want to learn functions from that data. Whereas, for example, artificial intelligence more generally could be a logic-based system or a system where someone has hard-coded in if-then kind of statements to automate without using data. So machine learning is all about data. And then reinforcement learning is a sub-area of machine learning because it is also all about data. It's about learning from interaction and learning from data, but it's a sub-area of machine learning that is more focused on decision-making. And especially it is focused on how can you get an agent to interact with the system and learn through trial and error interaction where it gets feedback about how good or bad its actions might be, and over time starts improving how it uh, makes decisions. Uh, so as a really simple example of what I mean by an automated decision-making system, you know, you can imagine you have a smart thermostat in your home, and that, and you want your agent to do uh, automatically increase or decrease the temperature to save on energy, but also to make sure that people in the home are comfortable. And so an automated decision-making system there is deciding what the temperature should be. And that example was just about efficient energy use within the home. So based on your research and experience, what aspects of machine learning and more specifically reinforcement learning make it particularly pertinent when working on environmental issues or, or projects and solutions? Yeah, so my definitely my focus is absolutely on energy efficiency. And one of the reasons for that is that my expertise is reinforcement learning. And I think reinforcement learning is the right technology to use to improve energy efficiency. And, and so I guess one of the main reasons for that is energy efficiency is about taking smarter actions. Like we need we might, we might need to make predictions about outcomes, you know, like predictions about what the weather is going to be to be able to change actions for thermostats and predictions about what the people might want in the home. So prediction is always going to be an important part of a control system. But in the end, you need an agent to decide, should I increase the temperature or should I decrease the temperature? And reinforced learning is all about control. So in that sense, it's very important for uh, making our system smarter because it needs to make smarter decisions automatically. But more importantly, too, is that uh, there's a lot of decision making in the world. But I like to sort of categorize it into two different types. There's higher level where we really need people at the helm. We need doctors making treatment decisions. Um, you know, we need operators and drinking water plants making important decisions about what what to do with filters, what kind of chemicals to buy, what's safe, what's needed for the town. Um, but we can really use machines to do lots of low level control that people are not so good at. This is things like controlling pump speeds that you need to check every second or, you know, monitoring many, many videos, things like that. So that's where machine learning systems like reinforcement learning can come in. And that's actually exactly what we need for improving energy efficiency in our homes or in drinking water treatment plants, where we can do things like change how we set pumps, change how many chemicals we use, change the temperature for HVAC, things like that. And now reinforced learning is particularly well suited because uh, it is based in trial and error interaction. So it's actually always learning while it's in deployment. And for a lot of our systems, things change frequently. So again, drinking water treatment, water conditions can change a lot within a year, but even year to year. 
Uh, and for example, in a building, you might actually have the different people coming in and out of the building and there could be lots of changes over time. So you really want to have learning adaptive systems controlling some of these low, these lower level uh, decisions like, like pump speeds and temperatures. And I think reinforced learning is very well suited to that. And could you share uh, more about some of the particular work that you're doing as related to machine learning and reinforcement learning more specifically in the environment, any particular projects um, and especially the ISL ADAPT project? Yeah, so the, one of the main projects that I'm doing, generally my lab works a lot on uh, just fundamental algorithm development and reinforced learning, trying to understand questions like how can we make our algorithms more robust? You know, what are current issues in our algorithms? And we usually do that on small synthetic problems so that we can do lots and lots of testing. But I do care a lot about the environment. And I think now is also with recent advances in reinforced learning, I think it's actually a mature enough technology that we can start bringing it into the real world. So that's one of the reasons I wanted to work on an actual problem, try to bring reinforcement into the real world, make our more static systems smarter. And so one of those, that main problem right now for me is drinking water treatment. So the, this is with a, a local engineering company called ISL Adapt and with the town of Drayton Valley, the, you know, the three of us, University of Alberta, like my group at the University of Alberta, uh, ISL Adapt and Town of Drayton Valley are, are trying to ask how can we improve energy efficiency and reduce chemical usage for drinking water treatment. So really it's about optimizing the existing system that's there. Uh, the operators still need to do all the work that they do, but we're mainly asking, can we save on energy? We do also have a little bit of a question, though, that the operators, of course, are very overworked. Um, they have so much to do to maintain these systems. And like I said, things change all the time. You know, they're already really busy and suddenly something is different in the river and they uh, have a mountain of work on top of the existing work that they have. So we are mostly asking, how can we improve energy efficiency? Uh, and cost to the town, but we are also asking how can we automate some of the manual work that is currently done by the operators. So that that's that's the project with with ISL Adapt and the town of Drayton Valley. And and the other really beautiful part of this project is, I mean, ISL's goal is to start helping Drayton Valley incorporate some of these efficiency improvements. Whereas uh, in parallel, we're continuing to do more of the research of how do we even get reinforced learning algorithms into the real world. And so ISL has commissioned uh, a little mini plant that actually sits inside Drayton Valley's larger plant. It taps off the same water system, uh, but is otherwise a small little plant where we can test a bunch of different algorithms and get insights into where can we actually get improvements. So in parallel, ISL is working more closely with Drayton Valley on their main plant, looking at their data, and we're continuing to work uh, doing more, uh, let's say, open-ended research stuff on the mini plant and, you know, sort of learning from each other as we work in parallel. That's so interesting that there's both the um, larger plant happening kind of in real time and then the research component happening, like the R&D component happening as well. And simultaneously, listeners might often not think about computer science being able to come into the real world in this way. So how do you um, work on bridging those digital and physical spaces when working on a research project, like you mentioned, bringing the algorithms into the real world, what um, what was that process like? I do think one of the barriers right now to bringing algorithms from reinforced learning or machine learning into the real world is that we do so much on computers, so so much in simulation, and the real world is the real world. It's physical. You might have robots and such. So of course, there you know people do work on things like robotics where. They are in computing science and they're also doing robotics. So they're already directly working with physical systems. But nonetheless, the, the biggest question when people want to use machine learning is they have to ask, how can I start getting machine learning on the real system? But I can't start from scratch. I need to sort of know, is it going to be good? How do I test if it's going to be good? 
A very common thing right now has been to try to create a simulator that mimics what the physical system is like, but you can run in simulation, you can test a bunch of your algorithms, and you can get some confidence that your algorithm is going to work well before you deploy it. There's a very well-known problem called the central real gap, where there's always a gap between your simulator and the real world. So any solution you make in the simulator isn't going to be a perfect fit for the real world, and there's an iteration process. We wanted to ask, how could you avoid building a simulator? First of all, building a simulator is very costly. So for us, we wanted to know, could you use previous logs of data of you know, operators controlling the plant, the decisions they've made, as a primary way to figure out how to design your reinforced learning agent so that then you could just deploy it onto the main plant? But that in itself is a research question. So we have been trying to answer that question on the mini plant as if it's the real plant. So you know, we sort of treat it like the real plant. We can try to develop our RL agents only using offline data. Then we can deploy them on the mini plant and see you know, how well that procedure is working. But we don't actually then deploy on the real plants because that's a much bigger step. That affects the people of Drayton Valley, whereas the mini plant allows us to actually uh, answer this research question. But the ultimate goal would be to design a, you know end-to-end like scenario that says, here's how you take only data to produce an agent that you would then trust deploying on um, a real system like the drinking water plant. What prompted you to be interested in, in the ISL Adapt project um, in particular, like as opposed to many other environmental applications of um, computing science, working on problems in the environment? What was it about this project that jumped out at you? I mean, you're exactly right. There's just lots of ways to use machine learning to help with the environment right now. I mean, machine learning is fundamentally about data analysis where you want to find complex nonlinear relationships in the data so you can make more accurate predictions. So for example, you might want to use machine learning to predict wildfires. You might want to understand migration patterns, or even for example, you could help climate modelers improve their climate modeling. These are all really great ways to use machine learning. So like I said, I care about the environment. I'd be happy to work on any of those things that would make it so that I could help with the environment, but my expertise is reinforcement learning. So very naturally, I want to use my expertise so that I can have be the most useful and and reinforce learning as well suited to improving energy efficiency. There's a lot to be gained by improving efficiency of our existing systems. It isn't that we have to build completely new systems. We just have a lot of static systems out there right now that with some learning and adaptation, I think we could gain quite a lot. Imagine we can improve our efficiency across all of our buildings and drinking water treatment plants by 10% even. That would be huge. So uh, to me, the gains could be very high and it also pairs with my, my expertise well. Oh, yeah, that's such a perfect combination between the two then. And also being like local in a place in Alberta too, like you could actually go to the plant and to the mini plant and see um, the research in action. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the, of course, the other reason is that, you know, ISL Adapt was forward thinking and came to the university and said, we want to try to use machine learning to improve drinking water treatment. So when an opportunity comes, of course, you jump on it. And when I first joined the project, for me, it was mainly, I really want to see reinforced learning in the real world. I think it's a technology that's ready to be used, but the world doesn't yet know how to use it because it's quite new. So if I want it to be used, then I should try to help demonstrate that it can be used. And here's this opportunity to do just that. But actually, since then, before it was mainly, how can I get reinforced learning into the real world? Now, I actually also just care about drinking water treatment. Now you start to learn more about an application and you see how important it is. So it's, I guess it's pretty obvious to most of the listeners here that drinking water treatment is important and we all care about having clean drinking water. You just heard Dr. Martha White of the University of Alberta talking about using reinforcement learning to improve energy efficiency in a water treatment plant in Drayton Valley. You're listening to Terra Informa, a production of CJSR 88.5 FM.
I had a couple more questions about the mini plant. What point is the mini plant at in terms of the process? So yeah, the beautiful thing about the mini plant is that it's mostly, it's almost exactly like the main plant. There are a few differences. So we can, we get to do the end-to-end water treatment process. You know, like what raw water comes in, goes through approximately the same procedure where it goes into a tank, the tank mixes it, uh, and then it gets pushed through a filter and you get clean water out the other end. It's just that clean water gets dumped out and it doesn't get used for anything. And, uh, and you, but you can still do the same process of, you know, like pushing water back through the filter. So it, it's a, it's very much like the, the main plant. The main difference with it, of course, is that we get to try things that we can't try in the main plant. We can increase dosing. We can change how the filters are, how we're passing water through the filters. Uh, but also we can also prototype other things. So for example, the mini plant is more sensor. There's more sensors on it than there's on the main plant. And uh, it's an opportunity to see, would it be useful to have this additional sensor or this other sensor? And which of these two sensors are actually very useful for the agent to decide that, you know, it should increase the, this pump speed. So the, the mini plant has I started two purposes. One is for us to actually test our algorithms on a real system rather than in simulation. And that real system is almost exactly like the true drinking water treatment plant. And the other one is actually to better understand how should these two things co-evolve? Like what kinds of sensors are actually going to support our agents? Eventually, if you were able to, would you want to be able to add those extra sensors to the to the big plant? Would that be beneficial for continued um, energy savings in the in the big water treatment plant? Yeah, absolutely. I think that is one of the main goals. In fact, I think this is something that ISL Adapt is going to play a big role. And you know, we're the I'm going to call us like the brain side. We're going to create our little agent brain. Um, we are not necessarily going to be on the hardware side, but ISL Adapt is hopefully going to be working with companies to identify which sensors did end up being very useful, that it would be worth it for a plant to actually install those sensors. And not like the sensors are that hard to install, but still, there needs to be a good reason to install that sensor. Um, and, and we're already finding that the case. Some sensors that we added to the mini plant have been of no utility whatsoever, and other ones are, are quite important. Absolutely. And then because this is a reinforcement learning agent, all of the information from the sensors are those being fed into the mini plant to keep to keep learning. Yeah, so the agent is 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 constantly reading from the mini plant all the sensor information that it has, and then based on that context, you know, like for example, what's the pH of the water? What's the temperature? What's the current current chemical dosing rate? How does like light go through the water? That's one of the sensors. It, it feeds that all in, and then based on that, would try would decide things like what the chemical dosing rate should be. Machine learning is all about if you have more data or more context, the better your agent should be able to do. The more that it knows the current state of the system, hopefully that means it can better infer what the outcomes of its actions would be. And so it knows if an action is a good or a bad action. So there is a piece that was published in The Guardian um, where Dr. Sasha Sony from Hugging Face um, is speaking about um, looking at the importance of considering the environmental footprint of AI. So we were wondering in this question, like if there was how that balance is struck between, you know, the really positive outcomes that come with using machine learning in projects that will aid the environment, this project in particular, as well as the many applications you spoke to as well, like climate modeling and wildfire predictions, um, but also that there is a footprint. So how those things are balanced um, when deploying projects in the real world. And yeah, sure. Do you think that yeah, sometimes when you get a new technology, you just people just talk about the benefits and forget about, like, for example, the compute costs or other things that are associated with it. Uh, one thing that's a that's a little different here is, you know, the probably these articles that talk about this often are thinking about things like chat GPT, yeah. these very, very large models that are trained on extremely large amounts of data, let's say the entire Internet. Um, and that's just a very costly thing to do. But one of the, the, the paradigm that we're looking at here, one that says, how do we take these low level sensors 
is actually just a very different paradigm. It's almost inherently more lightweight. It says, I want to have an agent that's continually interacting in the environment. So, uh, and is learning whilst it's in deployment. And it's going to be learning on, you know, let's say this hundred dimensional sensor space, but it's, it's quite different from, I want a chat bot that can talk with humans that's learned on all the text data from the internet. We don't have such data sets actually for water treatment. If we had internet sized data for drinking water treatment, we would definitely use it, but we don't have that kind of thing. So in that sense, we have to rely on the agent actually learning from the data that it gathers from each system. And uh, and those just end up being simpler simpler agents. So the current our our agents we just have a desktop computer that we have set up there. Our agent runs on that. It's a very lightweight strategy. And so in that sense, I think the energy savings from using just a, a smarter control strategy is going to be much higher than any kind of compute costs uh, for that agent itself. Um, I will say though that in the research world, because compute can kind of seem free sometimes, you know, you just you hit run, all your agents run that on the research side, you might end up wasting a lot of compute to eventually get to a good solution. So we do still always have to be mindful when we do our research, not to just willy-nilly run experiments and then realize it wasn't the right experiment to run and we just wasted all that compute. So that compute cost, the research compute cost can, can grow. And we do need to be judicious about running our experiments. Just like in biology labs, they wouldn't just run random experiments on mice and then uh, not be careful about it. You know, you wanna, you wanna be judicious in your experiments. As well, we kind of spoke about this earlier, and you alluded to the distinction between the higher and lower levels of control when um, bringing a reinforcement learning agent into the real world. So um, from that same vantage point, how does collaboration between scientific disciplines operate in this project and overarchingly in projects where we're using machine learning to work on environmental issues? Because you mentioned, you know, doctors are still going to make the treatment plan, but there might be lower level lower level control situations where the RL agent will actually be a little bit more well-suited than a person. So how does that all work together and how the scientific community interacts in a project like this? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, right now, actually, the mainly the, the two groups that are interacting are the research side, like, you know, using machine learning and then the water treatment expert side. So that would be, you know, ISL Adapt and Drayton Valley, the operators of Drayton Valley, and also the the company that made this mini plant, you know, they're uh, the experts on the drinking water treatment side. So the interfacing there is mainly along the lines of, you know, what would be useful for those operators? How does the actual plant work? How do you expect if we were to make these types of changes to the system, like add more chemicals or change the way that water, how quickly water is pushed through the filter, how would you expect that to like impact um impact energy efficiency or even impact the health of the filter, things like that. So uh, if anything, right now, there's just an expertise on the drinking water treatment side that helps inform what we should be doing with our algorithms. And we, of course, uh, eventually, you know, ISL, for example, uh, if they want to start producing a useful system for Drayton Valley, does have to ask, what is the most useful thing to give the operators? You know, you can always hypothesize. We can have, we the researchers can hypothesize, wouldn't it be great if we save 10% of electricity, but what the operators actually want is something else. So you have to be asking what would be the most important thing to help these people with today. Um, what do the operators currently feel like they're doing okay with in terms of decision-making? Like they're making high-level decisions about certain things. You know, have we have they told us which of the things they would like to keep making decisions about and which of them they would like us to help make decisions about? And in some sense, we're actually not far enough along yet to be at that fine grain enough of a level. The whole group has agreed that it would be useful to even just understand, could we save electricity? You know, could we change, for example, how the pumps are run to save electricity or to even see that we've improved filter health because you can actually measure 
properties of the filter and see the filter is always degrading over time. And then we can try to measure, are we seeing it degrade a little less over time? Um, and of course, there's very measurable things like, are we able to use less chemicals? So mainly we're in the phase right now of understanding uh, how can difference, differences in the way that the system is controlled impact these properties and not nearly yet close enough to a product where we, the operators really tell us, you know, here's the things we're totally happy with. We're going to keep making these decisions. Please automate away these other decisions for us. It sounds like it's a very collaborative project on the whole. Yeah, actually, I do think any kind of improvements in drinking water treatment are going to require many people to come together and to make things better because actually it's also a very difficult problem. You know, like different yeah. locations have very different treatment needs mm -hmm. and there's just, just a lot that needs to be done. So it's such a hard problem that I think it sort of has to be collaborative. But maybe another part of this too is that uh, I think an, a theme is also collaboration between the AI systems and people that are currently controlling things. And that's actually how I always want to see reinforced learning deployed. Whenever you do imagine that you have higher level control, lower level control, um, then it is very much just a how can the lower level control make the human operators, people who are actually the true ones who are maintaining the system, how can it make their job easier or just make the, the whole system more effective? So in that sense, it's a collaborative endeavor. Together, they're working to make drinking water treatment cost less and be more effective. We spoke a lot about the ISL DAP project and water treatment reinforcement learning. Are there any additional projects um, in, in your world or more generally projects that you've seen where it would be you think it would be fruitful to use reinforcement learning um, in tackling some of these pertinent environmental concerns? Definitely. Um, I guess the most close one is actually wastewater treatment, which is actually it's different than drinking water treatment. But of course, they're often housed in similar locations. Similar operators are doing those. And there's a lot of energy use in wastewater treatment as, too, as well. Like you have to treat water before you dump it back into the environment. More, more differently from something like just water stuff is uh, I do believe that our buildings could be a lot smarter in how we control them. And of course, Smart buildings is a big thing. Lots of people are working on smart buildings, but as yet there's not that much reinforced learning deployed there. And I think that could have a big impact. I'm also working a little bit through my student with the company on batteries and electricity trading. So right now, when you have lots of uh, electricity produced, variably from renewables, you want to store sometimes that energy in batteries. And the decision-making problem now becomes when should I discharge? Like when should I sell for my battery? And when should I buy? And should I store back in my battery? And you need to make sure that you're doing, uh, your decisions are not degrading your battery. And you also want to make sure you're making good decisions in terms of making money uh, for electricity trading. So I think that's actually another good use of reinforcement learning. Is there anything else you'd like to add um, that we didn't get to in the conversation that you'd like to bring people's attention to? This is definitely a period right now where there's a lot of concerns about AI being deployed in the real world. And, uh, and uh, you know, sometimes you have two camps, those who are, this is an existential risk camp and those who are like, this is just progress and everything's okay. Uh, and I think it's good to remember that most things are actually in the middle somewhere. We do have to acknowledge that with improvements in AI, we are going to be automating certain things. There's going to be a lot of disruptive change. And we need to ask, how should we organize this as a society? to make it so that these changes are beneficial to the majority of people rather than just to a small number of people. Uh, but on the flip side, I also don't think that there's uh, only an existential risk side to this. There's a long way to go before AI is replacing us as, a, as an intelligent creature. I'm personally not on the existential risk side for AI. Uh, and I see a lot of opportunity for us to run our world smarter, improve our own decision-making and complement ourselves so that we have better lives. 
So we do we do need to remember both. Like there's gonna I absolutely think there's gonna be opportunities and benefits, and we also need to start thinking a little bit more about how um, these improvements are gonna benefit us all. If it's a field that you want to go into, you should definitely go into it. This is only gonna be a field that grows. Um, we're gonna need more and more people that know how these systems work. I do think there's gonna be a lot of human in the loop kind of work where people are gonna be sitting with these kinds of systems. Maybe sometimes they'll produce surprising behavior and you will need people who actually understand how the systems work so that they can interact with them well and debug them and all that stuff. So I see a big market in the future for more people who are programmers, who understand how these learning systems work and it, it's a good time to enter the field. Thank you so much. You're welcome. That's all the time we have for this week. We've been your hosts, Lizzie Barron and Lauren Spielman. Thanks for listening. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, and all our content is created by a team of volunteers. Big shout out this week to Martha White for the interview. You can reach us for comments or questions via email, terra at cjsr.com, or message us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Terra Informa. For previous episodes, check out our website, terrainforma.ca. Catch you next week right here on Terra Informa.